Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Damien Barr, welcoming you to another Salon exclusive where you get to be the first to hear about the new books that we are most excited about. Leslie Loco is a Ghanaian Scottish architect, academic, and best selling novelist of the book A Private Affair, and she's our featured guest on today's episode. Her new book, Soul Sisters, is a lyrical page-turning summer read full of intrigue. It is brimming with themes that range across race, love, greed, secrets and betrayal. And it's a novel that traverses nearly a century from South Africa to Scotland and back again. Now, the modern day narrative focuses on Jen and Kemi, who share a family bond that stretches back generations. These ties, which bind them, will be tested when they each catch the eye of Sulam Matsunyane, a man from South Africa's black political elite who has ambitious political aspirations. Here's Leslie reading from Soul Sisters, and if you listen closely, you'll hear the birds singing their approval. Hello, my name is Leslie Loco, and I'm delighted to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon. I'm reading to you from my home in Accra, Ghana, where it's 5.30 in the morning, and as I'm sure you can probably hear, the birds are already singing. I'll be reading an extract from my new novel, Soul Sisters, which covers three generations of two families, one white, one black, beginning in 1921. The novel takes place mostly between Scotland and Southern Africa, although there's a fair bit of London, New York, and even the Democratic Republic of Congo thrown in. I've chosen a reading right at the beginning of the novel, where we meet two significant characters. Robert McFadden is 13 years old when he's brought face to face with a young African girl whom his missionary father has brought back with him from his mission station in Africa. I hope it will be intriguing enough for you to want to pick up the book. Robert McFadden, aged 13, pressed his ear flat against the wooden panelling and strained to hear the conversation taking place on the other side of the wall. You cannot be serious, his mother said, her voice tight with outrage. Where is she? There was a moment's silence, then his father's voice came through the wall, weak and placating. Well, that's just the thing. She's, uh, she's here. Here? Where's here? Here, in Edinburgh? Aye. Robert frowned. It had been a strange week. His father, who had been away in Africa for most of Robert's life, was finally back, for good. But Mother seemed about as pleased to see him as she was to see the gardener, or the coalman, or the old hunchback who delivered vegetables once a week. Not pleased, in other words. Knowing Margaret McFadden, it wasn't altogether surprising. Robert's quiet, stern character, somewhat disconcerting in a child of 13, came almost exclusively from his mother, or so everyone said. She'd married down, that was the word everyone used. For a time, Robert thought it meant Africa, down there, as the servants kept referring to it. After a while, however, he grasped the true meaning of the word. It had to do with money, of which his mother had plenty and his father absolutely none. No one seemed to understand how or why they'd married in the first place, and since he was an only child, there was no one to ask, no one with whom he could speculate. All he knew was what Mrs Guthrie, the housekeeper, had told him in those odd moments 
when she'd relax sufficiently to pour herself a wee dram and ease off her shoes. His mother was the daughter of a Rhodesian landowner, originally from Scotland, who'd been travelling with his wife and two young daughters from Salisbury to Johannesburg when their train derailed and they were stuck for a week in Marula, a tiny mission station just south of Bulawayo, where his father was stationed. He loved hearing the words, Bulawayo, Marula, Gweru. In Mrs Guthrie's mouth, they took on an even more exotic ring, Bulawayo. He'd looked it up on the map. He found it impossible to imagine his mother in anything other than the high-necked, stern dresses, with full skirts, stockings, boots, and sometimes even a tie that she wore year-round, even on the odd day when the sun shone brightly in Edinburgh and the air turned misty with heat and haze. Whatever had transpired that week in the middle of darkest Africa, Martha Strachan returned to Scotland betrothed. He was aware, too, that the word return had a certain ironic ring to it. Before she'd set foot in the house in Abercrombie Place, purchased for her and her new husband by an overly grateful father, she'd only been to Scotland once. She'd grown up on a sprawling estate in Rhodesia, had been homeschooled by her mother, an Englishwoman of her time and class, and as a result, she sounded about as Scottish as the Queen, whom she adored. Unlike her husband, whose Glaswegian accent was irrevocably wedded to his vocal cords, as his tweed suits were to his frame, there appeared to be little of Scotland in the woman, and vice versa. Every chance she could, she boarded the steam train for London, taking Robert with her. When Robert was nine, she'd outraged everyone by declining to send him to Fetty's College or to George Heriot's, which is where his cousins had been sent. Instead, she sent him to Eton. When he first heard the news, he was secretly relieved. Neither school inspired anything more than outright dread. Fetty's with its gloomy Gothic spires and George Heriot's with its turrets and cold stone facade seemed more like prisons than schools. He much preferred Eton. The endless playing fields, the smiling house matron, and the fact that he was 400-odd miles away from the frosty atmosphere of three Abercrombie Place was enough to assuage any homesickness he might otherwise have felt. By the age of 13, he sounded for all the world exactly like all the other English boys in his year. There was nothing Scottish about him, which pleased Margaret no end, but seemed to upset and astonish his father. In truth, it mattered little. He so seldom saw or heard from his father that by the time George McFadden returned to Edinburgh, Robert, who was on holiday from school, hardly recognised him. And what am I to do with her, he heard his mother ask frostily. He pressed his ear harder against the wall. I, well, perhaps we could find some employment. Employment? His father might as well have blasphemed. What sort of employment? There was a moment's hesitation. Well, she, she could join the other servants in the house. The house? His mother's voice rose. In our house? Whatever will people say? A Negro serving girl in this house? She's not, well, I mean, clearly, yes, of course she's a... Well, I mean, the thing is, I can hardly send her back, can I? His father appeared to be pleading. Robert McFadden, what in heaven's name are you doing? He jumped guiltily. It was Mrs Guthrie on her way to light the drawing room fire. I, I was just... Eavesdropping, that's what you were doing. Run away with you, before I tell your mother. Mrs Guthrie glowered down at him, and Robert needed no second warning. He fled. 
His mother would take an extremely dim view of his eavesdropping. As he galloped up the stairs to his room on the third floor, two at a time, he wondered who they'd been talking about. A Negro. A servant girl, too, by the sound of it. Who was she? And how would she come to be in Edinburgh? In his home? His first thought, upon seeing her for the first time, was that she resembled nothing so much as a deer. A doe-eyed, frightened-looking deer, caught in the crosshairs of a gun. His second thought, coming close on its heels, was that there was something strangely familiar about her, as though he'd seen her before. The two thoughts jostled uneasily at the forefront of his consciousness as he stared. It was a cold grey morning and the air was like smoke. Through the large sash window that looked onto the gardens at the rear of the crescent, the soft, muffled sky moved slowly and ponderously. Beyond the sloping rooftops and chimneys that fell to the Firth of Forth, the waters of the estuary glinted like steel. She stood next to the large oak table, flowery with the morning's baking, her thin dark fingers resting trembling on its edge, as though she might otherwise fall. She was slight, so slight, dressed in a long dark brown pinafore frock that was several sizes too big for her, and only a shade or two darker than her skin. He had never seen a Negro before. Once in London, sitting in the back of a taxi with his mother, he'd seen an Indian man in a resplendent turban and a long flowing robe that looked more like a dress than anything a man might wear. He'd craned his neck for ages, trying to catch the last glimpse of his dark skin and flashing white eyes, but his mother had caught him out and reprimanded him from staring. Now, however, he couldn't help himself. She was unlike anyone he'd ever encountered. Her hair, escaped from the funny cloth hat she wore, was thick and springy, a soft, dark cloud that shaped her head like a halo. Dennis stand there gawping at each other, the cook said briskly. Here, start with this, will you, she said to the Negro girl, handing her a rolling pin. Her own thick, meaty arms were covered in flour, sleeves pushed up to her elbows. The girl stood there dumbstruck, though whether with terror or incomprehension, Robert couldn't tell. How old was she? Does she speak English? Robert asked curiously. Aye, or so your father says, Cook said sniffily, as though the girl was invisible. I've never heard her say a word, mind. Suddenly the girl picked up the rolling pin and followed Cook's lead, batting down the soft mass and separating it into thick balls ready to be rolled. So she did speak English after all. He smiled, pleased with his discovery. To his surprise, she smiled back, offering the full charm of her face to him like a shy gift. It was a pleasant shock. There was something about her, he discovered, that made him fear a rebuff. He had no idea how to talk to her. In his confusion, he turned away and quickly left the kitchen. He climbed the stairs to his room on the third floor, just before the servants' quarters. It was lonely at home in the holidays. He missed the rowdy, rough-and-tumble atmosphere of school. Home was boring in a way school never was, could never be. Sometimes his mother came upon him in the library or the drawing room, idling without purpose, she called it. In mother's eyes, there could be no greater sin. He sat down on the edge of the bed and tried to recall the girl's face beyond the shock of the new. Her features were smudged. Any attempt at a precise recollection blotted out by her darkness. Eyes? Black, he thought, like the springy soft mass of her hair. Nose and mouth? He saw her in his mind's eye and frowned. 
There it was again, that strange sense of familiarity hovering on the edge of his consciousness. Was it possible he'd seen her likeness somewhere? A photograph, perhaps? It had been years since his father had opened any of the leather boxes that lay along the bottom shelf of the bookcase in his study. They contained a treasure of sepia-tinted photographs of father's other life in Africa, that place Robert had never seen and could scarcely imagine. The clock on the landing suddenly struck 11, the last chimes fading softly into the mid-morning gloom. On impulse, he stood up suddenly. Father had gone out earlier that morning, and his mother was entertaining a circle of women from the church in the drawing room on the ground floor. He had a sudden longing to open those boxes and see for himself where the mysterious Negro girl had come from. He might even find a photograph that he'd once seen, long ago, that was now reasserting itself in his mind's eye, explaining why it was that he felt he knew her, as impossible as it seemed. The dust mites spiralled slowly upwards as he pulled the first box towards him. It hadn't been moved for months, perhaps even years. No one ever came into the study other than father and the maids, who hurriedly dusted and restocked the cup, copper bucket of coals every other week. Somewhere inside him, a momentary twinge of unease surfaced, but he suppressed it quickly, a little quiver of excitement running through him as he lifted the lid. The musty smell of old paper and tobacco rushed upwards to meet him. There were perhaps a hundred or more photographs of differing sizes and paper thicknesses, from tiny portraits with crinkled edges to more official-looking prints of groups of people huddled under a tree, inside a mud-walled house, outside a church in what looked like the veritable middle of nowhere. He pulled them out carefully, picking each one up and studying it, trying to fathom the stern faces behind the mustachioed gentlemen in pit helmets and hats who were his father's colleagues, he supposed. There were no women. There was an old train ticket, yellowed and fading, he picked it up and turned it over. Leopoldville, Brazzaville. He didn't even know where that was. A dried out nib of a fountain pen, a button, some sort of insignia. There was a letter in there folded over thrice. He hesitated. He recognized his mother's looping, fanciful script while simultaneously hearing her voice. Eavesdroppers never hear good of themselves. Reading her letters was tantamount to eavesdropping, he knew. He carefully put the letter aside. A single portrait photograph lay underneath. He pulled it out and held it up. It was of a young woman with coal-black skin and shining eyes, who held her hand up to her mouth in a gesture of suppressed laughter. He frowned. There it was again, that whisper of something he'd long ago forgotten or buried, or both. He stared at the photograph. He turned it over. There, in his father's script, a single word, Nozzy. Suddenly, he heard footsteps coming towards the study door. He hurriedly shoved the photographs back into the box and clumsily put it back in place. He scrambled to his feet and only just managed to slip behind the heavy damask silk curtain behind his father's desk before the door opened. It was one of the maids, he watched as she quickly scraped the remnants of the previous night's fire from the grate and restacked the coals, carefully sweeping the ashes away from the hearth before tiptoeing out as quietly as she'd come. There was something foreboding about the study with its endless books and air of dim, deathly calm. He waited until the last of her footsteps died away and then he made his own escape.
it seems Robert has stumbled on something of a family scandal. That was Leslie Local reading from her new gorgeous book, Soul Sisters, with a little background help from the local wildlife. The novel is published by Pan Macmillan and available now. I know that there are local indie bookshops who would love to see you, so why not pop in and grab a copy to show them your support or order online. And if you're looking for a place to order from, may I suggest our shop on bookshop.org, which is a brilliant website full of great wee indie shops um, and lots and lots of really good lists too if you're looking for inspiration. And if you want more of this sort of content, and why wouldn't you, subscribe to our newsletter for details of competitions, tickets, and opportunities to share your own work um, as well. We do lots of publishing call-outs these days, so check it out. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy Soul Sisters. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Thank you for listening, and happy reading. <laughs>